That was the J cut, and this is the K cut. I'm Rachel, and I love world cinema, and I love to study language and cinema and how they interact with each other. I write for Films Fatale, and I've worked with film in Canada and in Europe. I'm here with my two co-hosts tonight. Introduce yourselves. I am Andreas. I am the main creator and also contributor to Films Fatale. I love all types of cinema, but if I had to pick one, I'm always going to go with art house or just some weird stuff. I also have studied film in university, the archival and collective procedures. And I wish to maybe one day do a PhD when, you know, I don't have to sell both kidneys to be able to do so. James here podcaster and recording artist i have an affinity for new hollywood cinema and low budget indie film i produce and release music under the alias boutique paul and i am one half of the prefer not to say podcast fantastic Fantastic. well the gang is all here yeah so for this evening's topic we were talking a bit about it and what we came to is talking about movies that have had an influence on our lives so that could be really frivolous like i don't know you switched vodka brands Or it could be that you changed your entire career path and everything you ever knew. Anything in between. So let's start with Andreas. What were you thinking of when this came up? Well, when you first asked this, this was was such an interesting topic where it's like, oh, I have to make the most of this. But then I was like really trying to think about it. Like, am I going to pick something like Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive where I just wanted to get like those driving gloves and just blast some neo-disco stuff like chromatics down the street or you know something that's kind of like more trivial like that where you're kind of like in a mood no i didn't really want to do that i wanted to like really make the most of this but like i didn't feel inclined to be a wine connoisseur after sideways i mean to be fair who would i didn't want to like do any particular types of hobbies after seeing stuff for me films are often an escape and like a taste of what these worlds are like and anything that i'm interested in like filmmaking or that kind of stuff i've already been interested in but then it was like literally last night where it's like oh but of course i finally figured out the one that i was looking for and that's 2015's Best Picture winner, Spotlight. Interesting. Where I was at a turning point in 2015 where I wanted to go back to school. And ultimately, as you know, Rachel, I did because we were in the same program. 2016, I ended up going to do my master's in film preservation and collections management. But the other thing that I really wanted to, to do and perhaps pursue was journalism. And a big reason was, and not just film journalism, I mean in general, A big reason was because of Spotlight, where I think it just really exemplified everything that I hate about the media today. And of course, there's been problematic media as long as that industry has existed. But seeing something like Spotlight, where it's like, you know, the real thing, you know, getting the real information and trying to relay it out to the world. That's just something that really, really, really fascinated me. And seeing like all of like the typewriters and and keyboards going you know like the shorthand notes all of that minutiae just was like a world i was just obsessed with at the time i was doing reviews and photography for another outlet you know journalism to a degree but there was something in me that wanted to like be this but you know not for like a crooked tabloid or anything like that 
something authentic, which unfortunately is a bit of a, a distant dream that I don't know if that could ever be met. Not even if I could become a journalist or not, but like specifically that. But when I was looking for education, I was applying actually for, for journalism. And that's something that I actually applied to a Ryerson as well, and not just a master's for film preservation. So regardless, I feel like I've tried to replicate that in anything I've done since, whether it's for other websites or Films Fatale. Uh, something that's a little bit more of like an honest approach or something that's like informative or educational without being preachy or anything, still an opinion piece. A big portion of that is spotlight, especially because it's just such a neutrally directed film that you don't feel like the music's blasting in your ears or this part's got to be dramatic outside of that one Mark Ruffalo scene. It's just there for you to dive in. And just if you're interested about you know journalism this film is just perfect it's a little bit of a stretch to say but i don't mm-hmm. care it's beautifully been s- structured exactly it's 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 been six years i'm gonna say it it's arguably one of the finest journalism films ever created i, I i'm easily gonna say that it's been six years i think it's it's deserved it and it was a very accepted win for best picture i would say there wasn't a lot of controversy about that and it's interesting because it's the first time since the greatest show on earth which was a much more polarizing Best Picture winning, obviously, for political reasons, since they didn't want to give High Noon, which was being blacklisted, the Best Picture win. But the first since to win Best Picture and only one other award, but it won for its writing, which was well-deserved, um, you know, because it's just so true to its source, but also just so engaging. And yeah, like you said, it's weird because a lot of people don't bring it up anymore. But if you do, I don't think it's like we don't care about it anymore it's just because it's not a very loud movie even though its subject matter is so monumental like this revelation like i remember where i was when this type of news was first coming out in the early 2000s um so obviously its subject matter is is gargantuan but the way that it's told allows the subject matter to take complete control as opposed to let's make this artificial version of this and try and make it cinematic. No, it does enough on its own. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. It really boils it down to just the story. And not a lot of films do that these days. No, because like the media. Can you imagine a big swelling score behind every point or anything like that? Oh, God. (laughs) That, yeah, then the movie would feel, not to be disrespectful, very Spielbergian. Like the media, a lot of films really beat dead horses when they try to relay points. And I feel like Spotlight doesn't do that. Judging by your silence that you have not seen Spotlight, is that correct, James? I have not. It's worth but, a look. You know, as we always say, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, it's definitely a good watch. Yeah, it's not necessarily an indie film, but it carries a lot of the same properties where it's like, not minimalist, but it's like more quaint in the way that it's telling stuff as opposed to like a big bombastic Hollywood film. Yeah, exactly. I think it'd be up your alley, but that's what greatly affected me. And who knows what the whole journalism thing, what greatly affected you, James? Like what changed your life to the point where it's like, after seeing this, I'm a new man. I'm a new James Bunn. So when the topic was presented, I knew instantly what I was going to pick. And it's the film that made me decide I wanted to do music. And that movie is 2002's Eight Mile, starring Eminem. Oh, yeah? Yes. This was my favorite movie when it came out. I don't know what it was about it. I don't know if it had to do with the fact that Lose Yourself was one of the biggest songs ever at the time and still is pretty iconic. 
but there was just something about it that just was screaming at me like you need to become a rapper i don't know why i thought this i was like 11 or 12 at the time but it really affected me because you know at that time for some reason i was like you know what what i was having these ideas what do i really want to do with my life you know i mean that that's the time where you're finding your interests and you know i was kind of considering music for no particular reason. I just sort of like thought of it, but upon seeing this movie, I was just, you know, floored by the story. You know, I, I love the whole underdog story where, you know, he's having a hard time getting himself out there, you know, he's getting booed. And then, you know, it all leads up to the end where he gets all the respect. And yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those things where it just clicked like, yep, this is what I want to do. So that's when I, you know, middle school is starting to write rhymes. And then eventually it led to where I am now, where I'm doing full on production and all sorts of other stuff. And it was also a movie that I was really surprised that Eminem is surprisingly a good actor. Like he really pulled the role off well. And then he just really didn't do anything after that, except for maybe bit roles playing himself. The thing about 8 Mile for me is that when I was a kid, I was like 12 or 13 when this came out, Eminem was still like the most polarizing guy on the face of the planet who took that title away from like... He was one of the most famous. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, he took that title away from things like South Park and then now exceptionally problematic and uh, canceled, thankfully, Marilyn Manson. But at the time, it was like he he became the reigning king of all things taboo. And then this came out and the song, which won best original song, lose yourself outside of two F words is a very earnest storytelling song. And I feel like even if you heard that on the radio, you're like, wow, this isn't the same guy. This, which I'm a big Eminem fan. He does a lot of introspective stuff, even on his earlier albums, but to the general public, you didn't hear stuff like this, not you know, without any form of, you know, very savage commentary or anything that's too dark. So that was a big foray into what hip hop could be for a lot of people who were quick to dismiss the genre either through Eminem as being too, you know, controversial or in general where a lot of people mis misappropriate what, you know, West Coast type of music is or, um, you know, what gangster rap is. Uh, there's this, uh, there's a lot of very bad labeling, but something like this, because it was attributed to the film and then, you know, you go see it and it's like, you know, this, this underdog story, la di da. To me, I feel like it got a lot of people listening to rap very differently where it's like, oh, I get it now. Like, uh, like cream is, is like this, but way more of a mosaic of things happening like a, a huge depiction of, of what it's like to have to like, you know, sell drugs to get by. Um, and it's not a glorification of it. it. It was just a necessity. It's what they knew, you know, with the Wu-Tang Clan members that, that you know, rapped in that song. So I feel like for a lot of people my age, it was, it was definitely an entry point to understanding hip hop a lot more than what the media or um, the older generations were ready to dismiss it as, which I feel like most of it was unjust. Oh, yeah. And I remember I had the soundtrack and there was a few other solo songs he had on that that were along these lines where it wasn't controversial. It kind of kept to the themes of the movie. And yeah, I just think it's unfortunate that he stopped acting, but it was for good reason, because during Eight Mile, that's actually what kicked off his opioid addiction, because he was working all those long days and he just also wasn't sleeping 
as a result. And then I think he said someone gave him Ambien and then it just knocked him right out. And he's like, oh, I like this. And then it ended up becoming a big problem. So that's part of the reason he kind of stayed away from Hollywood after that, because it didn't really affect his life too greatly, aside from the success that it got him in the movie world. Rachel, have you seen the film? I haven't seen it, no, but I've heard the song, of course. No, I just never got around to that one, but I'm going to add it to the list now. Yeah, I'll save you all the embarrassment. I actually know like the first two the verses verbatim, but I'm, I'm going to save everyone the embarrassment and not be that guy. But <laughs> that clearly the point is it's affected me similarly to the way that it has with you, James. And I actually didn't know that, that that's where his opiate addiction stemmed from. I didn't realize it was, I knew it was from that point in time, but I had no idea it was connected to like the actual film. Yeah, that was part of it because he was taking it to help him sleep because he'd be working those 14 hour days, but then not being able to sleep and it would just cause all sorts of problems for me. Yeah, he just realized like the actor's life wasn't for him because of how, you know, excruciatingly hard it is on your body and well-being. Yeah, well, I'm glad that he's doing much better now. His his music isn't really that great, but that's OK. Uh, that's not a problem. Uh as long yeah. as he you know who helped him get sober? Oh, who's that? The person who helped him get clean and who is actually one of his best friends, Elton John. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah actually, book. I knew that because they're, they're really I good friends I found that so now. interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah they became re- because it, And it goes back to like way in the early 2000s when they like had collaborated on a song performance for the Grammys or something like that. But I just yes. found it funny. It was like Elton John, of all people, helped him get sober. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's, it's because of that version of Stan at the Grammys. They've been friends ever since. I was just going to say about Elton John that he's actually performed that role for several people in Hollywood. He's this helper of people who are struggling, and he's helped quite a few people who are uh, handling addiction and things like that. So that's pretty cool. Oh, who else has he helped? Because I knew about Eminem, but I didn't know about other people. You know, I can't think of any names now, but I've, I've just heard that he has that reputation. That's awesome. Elton John is a fantastic guy. Yeah. We love you, Reginald <laughs> Dwight. Keep doing what you're doing, except for the music. You you yeah. can retire if you want. You you've you've done enough, but keep keep being you. You are an upstanding citizen. That's uh, James's pick. Uh, what was yours, Rachel? Because you came up with a topic this week, so I'm curious to know what prompted you to come up with it. Because clearly, you had a film as a basis for this. Well, I make an alarming number of life decisions based on movies and television. Oh, okay. Sorry. So the opposite of me then. <laughs> So one year, it was Christmas of 2011, and we had some family visiting for Christmas, and they said, I want to go see the new detective movie, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Ooh. Uh, It was the Fincher one, not the Swedish one. And uh, I'd heard of the book, but I'd never read it, and I was like, okay, I'll go to this long, boring crime movie. I'm not a mystery person at all, really, or I wasn't back then. And something about that movie just captivated me. Fincher's style, everybody working at the top of their game. You had Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. You had Baxter and Wall doing the editing. Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig were fabulous. And it just, it was a movie that just struck me. So I read the books and became a fan. And, you know, a lot of people would see a movie that takes place where everybody's getting murdered and say, well, gee, I would never want to go there. But I thought, huh, that sounds like a cool place to visit. So a few years later, I had the chance to travel in Europe and I directed myself to Stockholm and took the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo tour. And because of this movie, 
I explored Stockholm so much that I gradually fell in love with the place, and I thought, this is where I have to spend the rest of my life. It's a- it's actually because of the was the girl the dragon tattoo. I never knew that. Yes, so I fell in love with that beautiful dark brooding movie, uh, and developed a love for Nordic more in general, actually. And just from there, I completely fell in love with the Nordic countries and Stockholm specifically. So after a couple of years, I applied to grad school. And the way my program works is we had to do six months of working either at a museum or a gallery or something like that. And so I picked the Swedish Film Institute, got to live in Sweden for six months, fell in love so much that I went back for another round for another kind of visa. And it was the happiest time of my life. I met wonderful people. I traveled everywhere. I don't live there anymore, but I will treasure it forever. And if I hadn't gone to this detective movie I didn't want to see, I would never have had that joy. That's crazy, because I know you've seen it. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that that was where it all started. I just figured because, I mean, your family lineage, like your family tree just extends so far. I just figured it was something like that. Like, no, you just, you know somewhere i don't have any swedish background that i know of well i know that like there's like an icelandic so i just figured perhaps there's like some sort of like other scandinavian or nordic or something i just that's just what i figured i had no idea that it would have been literally from it was literally rooney Mara's that's amazing how do you feel about that one compared to the swedish version like just the first one not the other two films the new me were based one I enjoy the Swedish version. I think it's beautifully made. I've read in the past that the first movie you see, as opposed to its remake or adaptation or sequel, is always going to be the one you love the most. So if you see the American ring before the Japanese ring, you're going to love it the most, even though the Japanese ring might be better from a particular perspective. So that was me and the Swedish girl with the dragon tattoo. I couldn't love it quite as much. That's fair. And it's it's almost strange that yeah, there's a lot of scenic shots in, in the mm-hmm. Swedish one, but the American one, the Fincher one, is like made up of so many super extremely wide shots of like, you know, the mansion or landscapes that it almost shows off Stockholm a lot more. So I can mm-hmm. totally and see. I went to all that. the locations, I, didn't even know I went was on a the tour. tour. That's kind of <laughs> awesome. I didn't know they actually had like a tour. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they still do it, but there's a walking tour and you go all around. It's a very small area of Stockholm. And I've gone back to some of the sites there before since. And yeah, it's if anybody's traveling in Stockholm and they still have it, it's definitely worth a walk. Initially, what I thought you were going to say is that you had a little bit of like Lisbeth Salander in you because like myself personally and everybody else I know that loves the Millennium series, you know, through books or through films that character just resonates with them so heavily like you just yeah you know this this anti disestablishment type of you know like you know you could fend for yourself type thing like she's a true heroine yeah she's easily the most memorable thing about the book that's why the books were so successful i think because she was just so different yeah and i was ashamed that they wrote extra sequels with another writer i just thought that was awful they, uh, they weren't very good at all I only read the first one, which mm-hmm. was decent, because that was based on Steve Larson's like actual writings. But when they like completely veered off, I, I haven't read a single one since. Yeah, I enjoyed that movie, and to this day, and to, it still reminds me of my other home. That's cool. Well, I hope for your sake that you're able to go back, either for a short trip or just to live, because I know that it means a hell of a lot to you. But um, mm-hmm. this is about 
learning stuff that we don't know about each other. I know that you love Sweden already. <laughs> it's time for a fast round. Let's ask each other questions about things that we want to know about each other because we just don't know them yet. So James, do this the honors. Ask the first question. Awesome. I have a great one. What is a movie that had a twist that you didn't see coming? God, there, there are a lot when it comes mm-hmm. to that. But if I had to pick just one, good Lord. Um, <laughs> the girl with the dragon tattoo, that's a, that's a possibility. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to avoid that one. Uh, for some reason, Mulholland drives in my mind, but that's not really a twist. It kind of is, but it isn't. I'll go a different David Lynch film. I'll say Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet's wild. With, uh, I don't want to spoil it, though. There's definitely bigger twists and more frightening ones, but there's like that particular one where Jeffrey is trying to reach out for help and then he realizes, oh crap, but I don't want to say more than that because if you haven't seen Blue Velvet, it's a must. I got to rewatch that soon. It's a must watch, but it's, it's ah, how do I say it without spoiling? It's the realization of incognito. That's a good way to describe it. Where it's, I knew I was in trouble, but now I think I'm going to be killed. And that that realization is like, oh my God, it just, like that climax is just so pummeling because of that realization. And the way that Lynch pulls it off is just some of his best filmmaking. So there's probably better, but for some reason, I, I was just feeling very Lynchian right now. I'm going to go with Blue Velvet. I love that movie so much. That and Mulholland Drive are just two top tier cinematic experiences. Oh, it's it's great. And I think to save my audience who, you know, are regulars on my website, I, I tried to spare them the 10,000th appraisal of a Mulholland Drive that I've had. Rachel, uh, do you have a pick yet? Or The one that comes to mind with me is Parasite. Yes. And I know that a lot of people listening will have seen the movie because it's recent and it got so much press. That is such a great but twist. That twist, it just came out of nowhere and it turned it into a completely different movie. We thought we were going one way and suddenly we were going the other and it just turned the whole thing on its head, which is exactly what a twist is supposed to do. And a poorly executed twist cannot pull that off. Yeah, it, it morphs from this weird dark comedy drama to this really very smartly done social thriller once you get to that point i remember being in the theater and it just like that part happened and i was like hold up what and they just changed the tone of the entire movie yeah <laughs> and if you look back you can kind of see but if you're going in blind you don't know the best thing about twists though like the best twists is that the film is changed for the better not even just like in parasite's case where it's like the literal tone of the film but when you rewatch it and you know what it is ahead of time it's enriched it's not detrimental or you know it doesn't serve only the twist there's still an entire movie here but knowing what you know halfway through because of that game-changing twist you're like hang on a second, this entire first half of this movie means something else to me now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's also one of the rare instances where the Academy legitimately picked the best picture of the year. Yep. Yeah. And all the all the awards it won, it deserved every single one of them. No questions asked. The whole time I thought, there, there's no way they're going to do it. There's no way they're actually going to give it to them. They'll give them best director and say that's good enough. And they did it. I know. Best director, 
best picture, best form picture, best original screenplay. I was like, you literally won all the important awards. Like, I'm surprised they didn't come up with a rule saying, hey, you're only allowed to win this many awards now because no more for Bong Joon-ho. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be sad. Well, but because like the only other time this decade I could think of where they actually gave the best film of the year, best picture was Moonlight. But as we all know, they screwed that one up either with the envelope or not giving Barry Jenkins, best director, a bunch of things stymied that mm-hmm. win. And now that's all anyone remembers about it. I know, which is unfortunate because it's like one of the greatest films I've ever seen. But then not only did Parasite win, which it deserved to, it, it won correctly and in all of the things that it deserved to. So mm-hmm. it's like, wow, they really like, they really got it right this time. But that's its own twist, I guess, that the Academy got it right. James, what is the twist you were thinking of? Now, this is probably going to sound really lame to some people, but I got to go with the movie Saw. I did not see that coming. Oh, I thought you were going to say Fight Club. That's fine. Oh, no. <laughs> oh Fight Club. <laughs> but no, Saw, because I saw it. I didn't see it till years later because I just sort of missed when everybody was watching all those movies. And I just, you know, picked it up on a whim. I was like, you know, I'll give it a shot. And I'm going through. I was like, oh, OK, this is kind of cool. You know, it took horror in a kind of slightly different direction than it was going at the time. But when that ending happened, I just couldn't believe it. Like my brain couldn't handle it because I just, I don't know if it was, I didn't see it coming or the fact that there was nothing leading up to this. There were no hints at all. And I just thought, this is amazing. How did someone write this? Like, this is almost too good. It's almost too wise of a twist for someone's first feature. And then it's more impressive that it set off a chain where they're, you know, made a movie every single year. Then they ended it and then they decided we're bringing it back and they're trying to do more movies. Like it's one of those like iconic franchises that will never go away. But also the concept for the villain is great. The fact that it's a minimalist framework where, you know, it's these characters in just this one room, two of them. And then you have Danny Glover, who's, you know, on the outside trying to solve everything. Yeah. As much as I don't like the Saw movie, that twist is pretty undeniably great. Because you don't see it coming and, you know, you try to find impossibilities, but it's like, it kind of works. And then, like I said before, when you revisit it, it kind of changes the whole scope of what you're watching for the better. Yeah, it's also so abrupt, too. It just sort of happens and then movie ends and it's like, hold on, wait, what? This whole time? Those are those are fantastic twists. Now, for our own version of a twist, not really. Rachel, what is your question? What is a movie that you like, that someone else introduced you to and you would never have seen otherwise and classes don't count? That is a damn good question I'm going to have to think about. Man, that's a hard one. I like that. Um, okay, so mine is one that a friend, another cinephile friend of mine, has been recommending for a long time, but eventually she bought it for me for my birthday back in 2015, I think a year after release. It is... And this is going to sound crazy if you've never heard of this movie, but as soon as I start describing it, you're going to know exactly what it is if you have seen it. An Iranian melodramatic spaghetti western vampire horror movie called A A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Yes, 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 yes. And it is a crazy film by Annie Lilly Amipur. Yeah, my my friend was telling me about it for ages, and I just didn't get around to it, and eventually she bought it for my birthday, and then when I did watch it, I was like hold up this is this is like everything i needed in my life and it was just such a massive film like i love the cinematography which is all done in like black and white and gray scale with tons of shadows tons of lights the uh 
the satirical but honest Marconi-esque score that came with it, but also like all of the pop culture references inside of it. The uh, the feminist commentary is fantastic. It's one of those films where if you don't know what exists, you're like, what? How does this work? A movie like this just doesn't work. And then you watch it, and it's like, oh, that's how. It's magic. That's I've heard awesome. of that, but I haven't seen it. I've heard a lot of press, but I haven't seen it either. Oh, it's it's so worthwhile. If you're into, like, you know, separately spaghetti westerns or feminist pictures or vampire pictures that aren't, you know, romanticized for young adults, smush them together. You have this incredible genre-bending experience. I, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's... Like, there are films that I prefer, but it's definitely one of the most unique experiences of the 2010s when it comes to movies. That's awesome. James, what is your pick? Yeah, that's a really hard one because I'm usually showing other people movies that they would normally not see. I know. But I'm going to have to go with a friend show me the Darjeeling Limited. Oh, yeah. If I remember correctly, that's kind of what got me into checking out Wes Anderson. And it's a film that he'd always loved. And I just watched it and it was so unique and it was very striking. Like, it was just one of those things where I'm watching it and I'm just like, okay, I don't get what's going on, but it makes sense. And it's also just like, I think the relationship the the characters have with each other and the situation they're in made for a great story. But I think he really hits it on the nose with casting people, especially the specific people he gets for these casts. Cause you know, the characters need specific personalities to match them. And I think he does it right with that. I think the fact that he discovered Jason Schwartzman is obviously we have to give him credit for that because I mean, I don't, I'll watch anything that he's in. And then, you know, Adrian Brody. And then who's the third actor in that? I can't remember it off the top of my head. It's Owen Wilson, isn't it? Is it Owen Wilson? It's probably Owen Wilson. I mean, it's Wes Anderson. So safe to assume. (laughs) It is. Yeah. It's safe to assume. Yeah. I mean, he's the reason the the Wilson brothers are in the industry. So, I mean, for better or for worse, depending on how you feel about Owen, (laughs) it's just very interesting seeing almost how quirky his filmmaking style is because he's very precise in the aesthetic when it comes to his films everything's symmetrical for instance super symmetrical like that that was one of the things that was very interesting and i think the symmetry goes along with how busy some of his scenes can be not necessarily action wise but his color palettes are just off the charts sometimes the one thing that comes to mind like the grand budapest hotel the colors are wild in that and i just it's always like some weird like combination of pastel colors or very bright tones that's a movie for me where everything just works like every piece comes together in the best way possible damn it that was my question no i'm kidding it's not (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's a film that i probably wouldn't have seen otherwise but you know i'm glad that i saw it you know it definitely it's definitely one of those movies that widens your scope when you're you know looking into cinema and it's an interesting one to start mm-hmm. off with because that's usually the one that people forget to watch. And it's like, oh, yeah, I still need to watch this to complete my Wes Anderson <laughs> filmography. Just to, like to start off with that and then see. And I don't mean any disrespect because I actually like the film, but like see his better works and what he has to offer. I think it's such an interesting starting point. Yeah, I mean, he's never really made a bad film, but I'd say that is kind of in the period because wasn't mm-hmm. Steve Zissou right before that? Because that that was another one, which is a great movie, but it's kind of one of those like, you know, under the radar picks. And then, you know, he does Fantastic Mr. Fox, which kind of propels him into a a whole other space, because who would have thought someone would bring back stop motion animation in in that way? Yeah, Yeah, but 
I'll always be thankful for that time period he brought up because we'll always have Hotel Chevalier, which is one of my favorite works of his entirely, which is obviously a spinoff of Darjeeling Limited. Rachel, what is your pick since you came up with the question? Well, when I was about 12, I got invited to a birthday party for, yes, somebody the same age, because this is a very strange choice for a 12-year-old to put on, but it was Master and Commander. That was the movie she wanted to watch at her birthday. I would never have sought that out at that age. I would have thought, boring, dull, period piece, full of men. Who cares? I think it had recently been nominated for Best Picture, but that was about it. Yeah. And God, what a beautiful, heartfelt movie. What an incredible connection between the two leads. Um, Tremendous acting, gorgeous scenery, a very, very thought-provoking piece. Went in thinking I was going to be bored to death, and I was thoroughly entertained and just loved it. And I've seen it several times since, and it's held up. That's such a great pick, though, because even when it was released, it was, like, underappreciated, I feel. Yeah. But especially now... It is so grossly underappreciated. Like, I don't remember what I was writing about the other day. There are some movies that are award season darlings that just get, oh, it was Blue Valentine, that just get dropped like hot potatoes, even though they wore into legacy. And Master Commander, the, the, the far side of the world, is definitely one of those where it's like, why aren't people loving this? Like, I won't pretend it's my favorite film on Earth, but it's a damn good one, especially with what it's trying to do. It's a really solid movie. Absolutely. I think it's so criminally underseen. Yeah. Speaking of underseen, James, have you seen it? No, I haven't. And Crow and Batney are just perfect. Of course. And that's I don't really like a lot of Batney films, but that's one of his finest films. Mm-hmm. I was mad he didn't get nominated, to be honest. Oh, oh, like for for supporting? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I don't know what all of the, the details. All I know that year is that The Return of the King swept everything. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's my 2003 Academy Awards uh, frame of reference. And it was the only year Canada ever won Best International Film. Oh, wow. Oh, for the Barbarian Invasions. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, and they said in their speech they were really glad New Zealand didn't count. <laughs> Or that, yeah, like The Return of the King counts as a New Zealand film of some sort. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) My question, and oddly enough, it was slightly alluded to earlier when you said a film that you would have never watched and school doesn't count. I'm not going to ask your favorite film that you watched in class. Instead, what I'm going to ask, since this is something that I feel like we could all dream about, if you were a professor and you weren't teaching a film course overall with a bunch of films, you had to pick one film to make a course in one semester, just one film, perhaps a pair or a trilogy, what film do you think would warrant an entire semester and why? What would you love to teach? One film. So like, let's say like a Citizen Kane semester. So like all the particulates on the history of the film, it's, it's innovation, the film itself, but what would be your pick? I would go with 2004's Primer. And why is that? Because... It can go in many different directions. You can you can make so many assignments out of it. One, you could have the entire semester based on figuring out how the timelines work in the movie because of how complicated it is. Mm-hmm. Or you can go in the direction of, okay, how it relates to actual real world science because there is actual science used in the development of the story. And you could also come up with a lot of different concepts as far as, you know, morality because of the way the characters are dealing with each other and you know this form of time travel that they've discovered i think there's so many different things that could stem off of this one movie for a class i think you could fill up an entire semester worth of work for this movie just the complexity of it and 
it's a movie that warrants multiple watches. The more you watch it, the more you kind of put things together. Like I, I'll still watch it to this day and notice something that I didn't notice before. Like I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is crazy. Then the next time I watched it, I started to notice certain things. I was like, oh, wait, hold on. I I didn't put this and this together. And then you just see so many different nuances. It's just and each time you watch it, it gets better and better because you kind of start to understand it more because it's not one of those things where you can get it after a couple tries. Like I've watched it probably over a dozen times, if not more, and I'm still learning stuff about it. That's interesting. Yeah, the fact that it's pop culture status is almost entirely based on people trying to figure it out. I think that makes for a good subject where, you know, you could study it. If that much analysis of it generated its popularity alone. Rachel, do you have one? The Battle of Algiers. Oh, that is a damn good one. Sorry, listeners at home. That's one of my all-time favorite films. (laughs) It is a very good movie. I've seen it a few times and... First of all, you can look at the historical context of when it was being made and what was happening in France and Algeria at the time. You can look at it through the industry because the industry in Europe was undergoing quite a bit of change. You can look at it as a colonial or post-colonial film. And also, it's had a lot of application in the real world. Real militaries have used it and anti-terrorism operations. They've all taken influence from this movie. So there's so much to talk about. And you can even take up two weeks of class just watching the darn things. It's like three hours long. Also, it's been banned in a number of countries as well. So like perhaps Mm -hmm. why that might have been the case. Oh, God. I absolutely adore that that film. Literally, it's like top five ever material for me. So I'm so glad that you brought it up. James, if you have not seen this one, I implore you. It is... It's a must for any film person. It's beyond description, this film. Oh, I'll watch it. I plan on eventually watching every single film we talk about. That's fair. Uh, another thing I love about the Battle of Algiers is there's not really a clear protagonist. Yeah. There's a couple of possible ones, but just by trying to match each viewpoint or vantage point and figure out all of the different objectives that these people have. That would take up one one class alone out of like 12. It's really the situation that's the star of the movie. Yes. Like the setting, the circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as you said, the colonialism, all of that is like the center point for all of this. Mm-hmm. So what would you teach? Uh, so I'm trying to think on the same lines as, as, as both of you. The first answer I had when I was thinking of this question was Persona, because I think as an artifact, it just deconstructs the medium so much. But then I was thinking, but then what would the history be? Like the evolution of Bergman? Wouldn't that be more fitting for a Bergman kind of course? So then I was trying to think, what film would stand alone in the same way that, that both of you brought up? And I was thinking Apocalypse Now, which there's probably been courses on this before, where you look at, and this is a little bit different because even though it's still a part of Francis Ford Coppola's filmography, you look at the buildup, what this guy who was relatively an art house filmmaker who got kind of like smushed in the middle of the new Hollywood movement, accidentally revolutionized American cinema, what was he gonna do next? So, you know, after the big three, which just ended up being the fourth of his perfect quadrology of films. So, you know, The Godfather, Godfather 2, The Conversation. What was going to come next? This. He wanted to go bigger and better. There's obviously that Hearts of Darkness documentary about Mm -hmm. this as well. That would take up its own class. Your midterm could be about the making of the movie. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. All of that stuff. But like the after effect as well, what it did to Vietnam War pictures or just war cinema in general, its influences like Aguirre, like The Wrath of God and the like, uh, the things that it inspired, like Come and See. So all of these massive discussions that could surround this insanely chaotic production that ended up creating one of the best epics that cinema has ever seen. So I think that there's just so much of a calamity of information. You can make them read uh, Heart of Darkness by Conrad too, and that would take up some time. Exactly. So I feel like there's just so much backstory and stuff here. My line of thinking was coming up with this question. I have a, a classmate in our same program, Rachel, who did a course like this on Touch of Evil by Orson Welles. Wow. So much of that was like the problems with making the film so apparently they had to watch uh, uh touch of evil like five times which i love the film but to do that that many viewings in like one year is a little bit a little bit uh questionable but yeah like the production and the history behind it and the working up towards it because you know obviously before that he had citizen kane and the magnificent ambersons so all of that stuff so and he um, had a wild life he did orson welles yes he did mm -hmm. and uh similarly so did uh francis for coppola so that is my pick. So I feel like that's everything except for we got to give you three more films to put up with. Here are three recommendations of the week. James, what is your pick? I'm going to go with The Big Short. That is so good. I love that film. Why? Simply for the entertainment factor and the fact that it sheds a little light on some people who made it out like bandits during the whole 2008-2009 market crash. It's just a very smartly made film. I mean, everything from the cast down to the celebrity cameos who explain terminology that might not be familiar to the audience. And it's weirdly relevant now. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's kind of too bad about that. It's a film that I can watch anytime, any day, anywhere. And it's also interesting because it's an Adam McKay film. I didn't really know who he was until I looked him up and I was like, oh, so this is the dude who directs all those Will Ferrell movies that I don't like because I am not a Will Ferrell fan. <laughs> and then seeing this, I was like, okay, no, I need to see more of this from him. I like movies that take on subject matter, like real life subject matter, especially ones that were originally books, because this is originally a book by Michael Lewis and I've been meaning to read it. But yeah, that, that wasn't the only movie he's had a uh, book he's had that's been made into a film. He actually wrote the book Moneyball, which was turned into a film. Yes. Oh, yeah. So it's like films like that or like the social network. Just I, I always like when people take real life things that aren't. I don't know how to describe it. That aren't the typical thing you take. Like, I don't want like a situation like a general situation that's just relatable to everybody. This is very nuanced and it definitely, I don't know, it makes you think about what was going on at that time and how complicated that whole structure is when it comes to the finance world and just, you know, how one guy saw it and said, this is going to crumble. I'm going to go short everybody that's around me and then we're going to make a bunch of money. And then just, I think it's just the kind of group of people that got involved in this whole thing is just hilarious. Like those two guys that had a hedge fund in their garage. And then the guy they contact is played by Brad Pitt. Who's a dude who's off the grid. Oh yeah. I don't know. There's just so many great moments in that movie. Like I told you not to phone my, my, my one phone number. I told you it was yeah. on the phone and he's got like, yeah, he's, all, he's obsessed about having <laughs> seeds for gardening. And I think one of my favorite scenes is the, the dudes were like, kind of like hyping themselves up for what was about to happen. He's like, and he yells at him. He's like, okay, look, you know, everybody's going to lose their jobs, right? This is going to ruin people's lives. He's like, he's like, I get it. You're excited. Just don't dance. <laughs> and I was like, it's, it's a very Brad Pitt <laughs> thing to say in general, but yeah, there's just so many great movements. 
it's a great quote because they're celebrating themselves, but meanwhile, so many other people are suffering as a result. So yeah, and just also like the cameos are great. One of the weirdest moments that I never thought I'd ever see happen when they're like, "Oh, to explain this, here's Margot Robbie in a bathtub," and I'm like, "Hold on, what?" <laughs> or like Selena Gomez and um, uh, Anthony Bourdain and Anthony Bourdain. Rest uh, rest in peace. Yeah, I feel like the laundromat tried to do this and failed. Yeah, yeah. I've wrote, I've written about this on the website before. There's like this whole new wave, and I feel like it started with the Wolf of Wall Street, where it's like informative stuff, but with unreliable narrators. So they like mm-hmm. break the fourth wall. They talk to you directly. They uh, make their own decisions. So like, oh, I didn't, I don't want this car. I want this car. The laundromat was like that, but a very rare dud for Steven Soderbergh, in my opinion. I didn't really care for it at all. But there's definitely this wave of, I don't even know what to call it. Perhaps I could be the guy to coin it. Um, this wave of new American fourth wall shattering Money biographical movies. pictures. Yeah, something. I don't know. We got we got to work on that clearly. There's a book proposal for the GameStop situation and it was already bought up by MGM, so Of course it was. I can't wait to see that movie. Rachel, what is your pick? It's something I watched this weekend. I've seen it before, but it was Valentine's Day and I was in the mood for a romantic movie and that is Andreas knows this one, Summertime. Oh yes. Yes. So this is a 1955 movie, so some pretty early David Lane. It's got Katherine Hepburn, my favorite, and she's this single secretary in her late 40s who travels for the first time in her life and goes to Venice for the summer. So you get this absolutely gorgeous travelogue of Venice, and it really is spectacular. The colors are amazing. And Hepburn is phenomenal. She's vulnerable. She's scared. But she's got this fire to her, and she finally gets to be her own person for the first time in her life. And of course, she meets Rosanna Brazzi and things go from there. And it's an absolute treat. It's not quite the neat little love story that I think people are picturing from my description. There's a mm-hmm. lot of layer to it. And it's a really satisfying romantic movie if, if you're ever in the mood for one. You can't go wrong with something like that, especially from the, the golden age of classic Hollywood, the, the, the great 50s. I haven't actually seen this one. Is it a Technicolor one? Yes, it is. And Venice looks beautiful. It's on Criterion if you want to check it out. I think I might have to. You said it was David Lean? Yes, it is. And it's interesting. He was actually one of Hepburn's favorite directors ever. And she always said the best directors were former editors, just like David Lean. And Robert Weiss. Mm -hmm. Well, not that he's my personal favorite, but like, you know, former editor. For the website, I'm going to be doing the ranking of filmographies of whichever director makes my wall of directors. And David Lean's on there, so I will definitely... And you can hold me to it because I'm going to be doing it. Definitely be checking that one out. For my pick, I went with, uh, speaking of Criterion, I'm glad that Criterion, This I think this is the only time where they had a film in their Eclipse series that they upgraded to a standalone release. And I'm very thankful for that. So the world can hopefully, you know, be able to watch and appreciate what I formerly considered a criminally underrated film, Larissa Shepitko's the Ascent, which is a 1977 insane, overwhelming, like catastrophic, titanic experience. So basically, like without giving too much away, two Soviet soldiers who are hiding from Germany while they're occupying their territory, basically fending for themselves, but they both have different viewpoints of the subject matter. So like, should we fend for ourselves, save others? And they both, again, they both have very different viewpoints and and different outcomes. So I don't want to see more than that. I think it's a must see. I'm glad that Criterion is giving it the treatment that it deserves. Okay, then. 
That is an overwhelming amount of recommendations, as usual. And that's it for us. This is the K-Cut, and now we're going into the L-Cut. 